0: about uh, Easter. What better day to to do that? Uh, But I I want us to look at Easter, if it's possible. It's so familiar to some people that it's a kind of story that when you hear it, your mind just skips ahead like a book that you've read. I don't know if you ever do this, but every once in a while I'll pull out an old book that I've read and I will think, gosh, I'm, I, I just feel like this, st- this story still has some legs and I'm going to read it. And I start reading it and, I, and my memory kicks in and I start thinking about what the narrative is unfolding and I start skipping pages and I read you know, two-thirds of the book and then I go, I don't know why I ever read this before. Put it down. And the Easter story can sometimes be like that for us. And what I want to pray, pray and ask God to help us to do, but also just maybe take you into looking at the Easter story the, the Good Friday and Easter because those two things you can't separate them. I want to try to explain those two you today and to show you why they really matter Now a lot of us uh, are really interested in the past and the future and people like to talk about the past there's websites where you can find out about your genealogy and you can uh, find records of ancestors and people uh, who, who you know were famous and infamous you know some of us do have some infamous people in our family tree we don't all come from kings and rich people and saints and our you know our, our preoccupation with the past though if you get down to a real personal level, a lot of times, and this relates to the Easter story, a lot of it is because we're haunted by our past. Aren't we? Our past just follows us around. And some of us know what it's like to have our past to define us. Especially our past defines us when we get around certain people. Or sometimes our past can just define us. And... What's happened to us is something that haunts us, what we've done, how people have treated us, how we've reacted to them. All that becomes a part of our story, and we carry it around with us. And literature is full of people who have thought that they could just get a new start by running from their problems. But what's the problem with running from your problems? You bring them with you. Because we're always the biggest problem in our problems. And so no matter how far we run, we take them with us. And our past just seems to repeat itself. And then we think about the future with the past like we have, and it's not very encouraging, right? And you're going, John, I thought Easter was like an upbeat day. Where are you taking us? Well, it is. But you've got to, in a sense, realize, I want you to get in touch with something just for a moment that Easter speaks to, that, that Good Friday and Easter speak to the gospel speaks to us right where we are. It speaks to who we are. It speaks to the lives that we've lived. And it speaks to the life that we hope to live that people just don't ever seem to realize. And so followers of Jesus celebrate Easter, Good Friday and Easter, because we've found in Jesus someone who actually can do something about our past and our future. And it's, it's something that none of us could ever hope to change or touch or or bring about any any change in our own power or our own strength. And so the, the story of Easter begins on Good Friday, so that's what I want to take you back to. If you have a Bible with you, the story of Good Friday that extends into Easter is a pretty dark story. In fact, when we had the Good Friday service on Friday, we were... I was realizing there isn't really a greeting for Good Friday, is there? It's like, Happy Easter! You don't say Happy Good Friday. It's pretty much a downer day. It's a day when Jesus was crucified. It's a day of darkness. It's a day of rejection. It's just a a tragic day. But yet, the story doesn't stop there. It goes on to Easter, the day that we're celebrating. And so... On this day, I want you to see something maybe you've never seen before about how Easter began. You know, in some church traditions, when you come into the celebration of Easter, they have the lights almost all the way off. Because it it sets a mood of how dark it was before Jesus was resurrected. And the the Gospel accounts begin... On the day of Jesus' resurrection, before dawn. And so it's a picture, it's an attempt to try to draw you back into what it was like. And so I want to take you back even before the dawn of Jesus' resurrection to two days before that. And in Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 32, after Jesus' trial, we're going to pick up the narrative here. It says... And and I want you to notice something. This is the intro to Jesus' crucifixion. You know, when we think about Easter, there's all these beautiful flowers, we sing upbeat songs, people are dressed colorfully, uh, everyone is cheerful, but faith wasn't born in that environment. When we start this story, it was just... It was an environment of unbelief. It was an environment of skepticism and rejection of Jesus. It was as negative an environment as you could ever possibly imagine. I mean, at the very best we've ever experienced, this was the polar opposite of it. So it says that as they were going out, in other words, as Jesus was going out with his cross, going to where he was going to be crucified, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And what they were doing was they were giving him something to deaden the pain. That was a common thing that they would do for people who were going to be crucified, because crucifixion was the worst possible execution you could ever imagine. Uh, it was invented uh, before the Romans used it, and it was a, a a form of torture. Sometimes for days, people would suffer. They would put uh, nails through people's hands or wrists and their feet, and they would hang on these wooden crosses, and to breathe, you had to push up off your feet to take a breath, and, and then you had to let back down because you had nails through your feet. You couldn't breathe with your uh, arms in the position they were in, and the weight pulling down on you. And so every breath you took was this excruciating experience of pushing up off your feet. And if you've ever had a, a tiny little blister on your foot, and you're, you know, you're limping around uh, with that tiny little irritation, can you imagine having nails pierced through the arch of your feet? And you're pushing up off that so you can breathe. And you do that moment by moment, hour by hour. And your natural drive to survive kicks in and adrenaline's going through your body, you're racked with pain. Jesus had been whipped twice. 39 lashes, which in, in Roman records, there were times where people died just getting the 39 lashes. They didn't even survive that. It was so brutal. So Jesus is going to be crucified and he's completely whipped uh, they offer him this wine and he doesn't take it and you may think why didn't Jesus take this and it wasn't just wine it was wine uh, with some herbs in it that, that were a potent anesthetic and so what they do is they numb you to the pain and Jewish women wealthy Jewish women had a custom of showing mercy to condemn criminals that way they would buy uh, this gall mixture and they would put it on sponges and they would give it to uh, criminals that were being crucified to try to alleviate some of their pain. Jesus wouldn't take it because there was a purpose to his pain. There was a purpose to what he was doing. So he wouldn't take it. And it says when they had crucified him, in other words, once, once they'd driven the nails into his hands and his feet and then lifted up the cross, and dropped it into the hole in the ground. It says that they uh, crew, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And after sitting down, they kept watch over him there because soldiers had to watch the criminals to, until they died. So the soldiers would just camp there. Sometimes they died in a short time. Sometimes they died. It took days. But the soldiers' job was to make sure that the execution was performed. And above Jesus' head, it says, there was the written charge against him. So when the criminal would go through the uh, where, to, uh, the road to wherever they were going to crucify him, they would carry a soldier would carry the charge against him in front of him, and the charge against Jesus was his identity, not anything he 'd done. It said the king of the Jews," and it says that <clears throat> two robbers were crucified with him one on his right and one on his left and if you remember the story of Barabbas Barabbas was a robber who Pilate allowed to be released so that Jesus could take his place so Jesus was already a substitute for a criminal and apparently the criminal's two friends were on either side of it so this is the scene And it says, those who were passing by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others and they're they're mocking all the miracles that he'd done. And all the, uh, uh, the love he had showed and, and the mercy that had been poured out through his life. They had always thought he was a complete charlatan. That he was uh, a threat to their faith. And they thought he was a false prophet. He was an evil person. And so now they're getting their chance to, to mock him. And they're saying, okay, if you're the Son of God, uh, come down and we'll believe in you. In other words, come down from that cross Do what only the Messiah could do. Overcome the Romans and overcome their power and then we'll believe in you. They still wanted a political solution to their problems. And it wasn't a political solution that they needed. And so, they said, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the Son of God. And in the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him on one side the other also heaped insults on him. So, at this point, This is the atmosphere around Jesus. It's this atmosphere of scorn and mockery and and utter rejection. Jesus is utterly rejected. And if you've read the Gospels, the the Gospel stories come to this point. This is the climax of the story. Jesus' birth and then His life and all the miracles and the things He taught. It's like this amazing story that comes to this point and all of a sudden... It's it's not just a surprise ending. It's a surprise ending before a surprise ending before a surprise ending before a surprise ending. But you think things couldn't go any better than they were. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the triumphant entry where Jesus came into town. Everyone's saying, Hosanna, you know, the son of David. They're all celebrating him and acclaiming him. And then boom, things just go downhill. And he is just surrounded by by scorned and ridicule, And this is what he chose. He told them, before this all happened, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, over and over and over, he kept saying, I'm going to be rejected. Even though you think, of all, well, everyone's going to believe in me. I'm going to be rejected by the leaders and turned over to the Romans and they're going to crucify me. But I'm going to rise again on the third day. And the Jews had no concept of someone rising again Until the end of the age. They didn't ever think anybody was going to rise again. Not until the end of the age when everybody rises from the dead at the same time and there's this great judgment. They didn't have any concept of resurrection. See, some people have probably told you that Christians, this whole resurrection idea, the, the, the Christians saw what they wanted to see. They made this whole thing up. That's not true. You can go back, you can find scholars who will tell you after an exhaustive search of all the the beliefs about life after death in the ancient world, nobody ever believed anything like this. And everybody believed in life after death, after the end of the world at some point, but not what happened to Jesus. They didn't expect that. But Jesus kept telling them, this is what I'm coming to do. This is what's going to happen. And so there's this sense that The Jews had, which came from God, and I've explained this to you before, but to hang on a cross or to hang on a tree was a judgment that was reserved for only the worst criminals and that the people who were under God's curse were hung on a tree as a sign that they were utterly rejected by God. And so, all the Jews saw Jesus hanging on a tree, and because of this this sense that they had, this moral sense that the good guys win. The good guys win, and the bad guys lose, and in the end, God will show who He's for and who He's against. They looked at Jesus on the cross, and they felt like, I guess we were wrong. I guess He really was a charlatan, because the Messiah from God, could never end up hanging on a Roman cross. The world could never triumph over the Messiah. Could never happen. Could never happen. And so that's how this story begins. And so into that incredible, intense, almost universal sense that Jesus is rejected by God, he's really not from God, we've been mistaken. God does three things. And Matthew is the only one who records of the the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And so he notes three miracles that God did at the death of Jesus that would speak to the Jewish people. They wouldn't be necessarily that important to pagans, to Gentiles, but they would be to Jews. And so there's three things in these next few verses that... Matthew notes when Jesus is dying. And they are things that have historical verification outside the Bible. There are three unusual events that happened around the death exactly when Jesus was suffering and dying on the cross. And there are those kinds of events that, that God is bringing to show and speak into this atmosphere of unbelief and rejection. And so, first it starts off, in verse 45, it says, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. So, around noon, as Jesus is being crucified, he began to be crucified around 9 a.m. From 9 to 12, it's an ordinary crucifixion. He's just hanging there. People are going by mocking him. This is what happened. If you've ever seen some of those old westerns, where they have public hangings and all the people come for the hanging. You know that sort of weird, you think it's just Hollywood, that people wouldn't want to go to a public hanging and like for entertainment? People did. It, it's just the dark part of humanity. And so people came to see people being crucified. And Jesus was really famous. So He drew huge crowds. And Matthew records them mocking Him and so for three hours, it's like people are just going by and they're mocking him and they're laughing at him. And suddenly at noon, it says everything starts getting dark. And two historians outside of Jewish historians or Christian historians noted that this darkness went all over the Roman world. It was, they saw it in Rome, they saw it in Egypt. They saw it uh, east of Jerusalem. This, And it wasn't like an eclipse. It was some other kind of weird event. Because we know how eclipses uh, are seen. They happen regularly. And astronomers have worked back and seen that there's no eclipse that happened at that time. But some sort of darkness fell over the land as Jesus was... On the cross. And he said, at that that hour, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so darkness in the Jewish mindset was associated with judgment. When God was judging the gods of Egypt, one of the judgments was darkness came over the land. And so the problem was, in this first sign from God, the people could have thought, well, phew, darkness is coming. God's judging this false prophet Jesus. But that's, that wasn't what was happening. And when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was, he was reciting the single most famous psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 22. And it's, an, it's what's called a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that was considered to be a song, a, 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 a song that gave us insight into the Messiah. This, this special, unique character who was going to come from God. Jesus says, because the beginning line of that psalm is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what Jesus was saying was, I am God forsaken, but I'm not God forsaken for the reasons that you think. I'm not God forsaken for myself. I'm God forsaken because of you. Not just because you crucified me, but I'm taking on you the judgment. This darkness is a picture of the judgment of God that's, that's going to break into the world one day. And it started now. And I'm taking it. And, and I'm offering something for everyone that everyone needs. Not everyone will recognize it. Not everyone will recognize that they need it. Not everyone will be willing to admit to that publicly. But Jesus was doing what he was doing publicly it wasn't hidden, it wasn't off somewhere where nobody could ever verify it. He did what he was doing, like I've said often, in the crossroads of the ancient world, where Europe and Asia and Africa, all the merchants went through this area. God was strategically bringing his message to the place where it could spread the most quickly and, and where we have the biggest audience. God isn't afraid of anyone or anything in in the sense of His message. It's powerful. But we don't always recognize it in the light uh, that we should see it in it. And so, our past failures, what's defined us, what we can never shake, Jesus, this is the, the sign where He's saying, I'm taking all that darkness from you onto myself. And what's defined you is now defining me and God's eyes and everyone else. I'm becoming your substitute. What you could never do, I'm doing for you. And so it says that some of those who were staying there immediately said, he's calling Elijah. They misunderstood him. So they ran and got some wine vinegar, which wasn't anything to kill the pain. It was just some, it was just some moisture for relief. And so it says, they said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to him. Next, it says, when he cried out again, and it doesn't say here in, in Luke, or excuse me, in Matthew what he cries out, but he says, John records who was there, John says that Jesus, right when he died, he said, it's finished. He said, it's finished. And when he said that, Matthew says, at that moment, now that was at 3 p.m., another interesting coincidence. When Jesus was dying was the time at 3 p.m. when the sacrifice was being offered in the temple. The lamb that was sacrificed for the nation on that day was being offered in the temple at the very moment that Jesus was being sacrificed. And the, the temple was crowded with people. And the priest, the priest with the blood for, for the people was approaching the holy place, the holy, of holy place where God was. And he could only go in there one time a year. And the only way that God's covenant with Israel could be renewed and, and was if that blood was poured out in the holy place on the ark between the two angels. And so the priest is going towards that. And it says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, you notice what Matthew said. And this is, again, this is a fact that the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud records, Josephus records it, and there's another Roman historian, Tacitus, I forget if that's the right one. They all recorded that something happened in the temple that shook the Jewish establishment in a way that nothing else had ever, it threatened their sense of that the temple itself was, and the whole temple system was threatened by whatever happened. They didn't ever let out what happened. At least they didn't get into those records. It was in the Christian records. But can you imagine, you're the priest going with the blood, and you walk up to the, to the curtain, and you're going to go around it, and all of a sudden, from top to bottom, the curtain splits. Now, this curtain is 60 feet wide. It's 30 feet tall. When Herod's temple was... This is Herod's temple. When it was being built... They described how difficult it was because the, this curtain was also four to six inches thick, the material. And some people said that was because of layers and layers of curtain that were put each time, the, the, each year the, the, the Messiah didn't come. But one way or another, it was very, t- depends on which historical uh, source you look at, but it was very thick, it was very heavy. It took hundreds of men to hoist it up in its place. And Matthew says, when the priest was going to offer the blood, right when Jesus died on the cross, the temp, the, this, this curtain which separated God and His holiness from the people. Because there is a curtain between us and God that we can't go past. God is holy. We are not. No matter what we do on our own, we cannot get into God's presence through that curtain. And if priests, and there's stories in the Bible of people going back there who were not authorized to do so, they were killed. They were judged by God because God is holy and we're not. And this curtain was torn from top to bottom. Do you get that? It's, it's a picture like of God, if God had two hands, taking the curtain and just ripping it. Now I've seen Rick Venata break or or tear a phone book in half. You guys don't know that Rick can do that. I can't do it. I can, like, get three pages. You know, if me and Jay work together, we could probably do eight pages. Rick just tears it open. Well, this is beyond that. Now, imagine the symbolic impact of that. Number one, it's a sign of God's judgment on this whole system. It's over. But it's also a sign that now we don't have to go in through the blood of that animal over and over and over once a year, but that we have a new way to know and relate to God because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. So when He said, I'm finished, it's finished, He's saying this whole system, and every system in the world that people use to try to approach God is now fulfilled. You know when people tell you there's some truth in all the religious ideas in the world? There really is. The Jewish people had something that was the clearest picture of that. But it was only temporary. And when Jesus died, he died to complete that whole system and give us a new way. And so at this moment, it's, it's again, it's this picture, and this is the if you want to take something home today and hold on to it, when people ask you, what's the whole gospel about? What's this whole story about? What's Good Friday and Easter about? It's real simple. His end is our new beginning. His end is our new beginning. The first sign, the judgment, the darkness, His end is our new beginning, not under judgment. His end where He sacrifices His life and pours His blood out as He hung on the cross and suffered and died in our place. And the the justice of God was satisfied there. Then suddenly, His end is our new beginning. He made a way for us. A way that no one would ever have conceived of outside of God showing it to us. And then there is, the next thing it says, when that temple curtain was torn in two, there was an earthquake. And the earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open. And again, this is another event that was recorded in history. And it says the bodies of many holy people, or saints who had died, were raised to life. In other words, there was people who had believed in Jesus but in the three years between the beginning of His ministry and this moment. And they had died in faith in Jesus. And Jesus had said, if you read through the Gospels, he says that if you believe in me, even if you die, you're going to rise again. And it says that th- their graves were were broken open. And on this mountain around Jesus, Mount Golgotha, there was all kinds of graves around it. They were dug into the mountains. They didn't tend to, to have graves the way we do. And these huge rocks that they would put against them were just broken open. And it says that They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. They went into the city and appeared to many people. This wasn't like some weird walking dead thing. Okay? Not the inspiration of the series. This is where the power of the sacrifice of Jesus was immediately felt from that point on. And again, when we wrestle with our past and our future, we can't shake our past. Only Jesus can break the power of our past over our lives. And the future that is so uncertain, and if we look at our past, can oftentimes be really discouraging to us. Jesus shows us he has a new life for us, and he's in control of the future. He's in control of everything that can happen, and he will care for us. But the new life that came from him, those people had died in faith in Jesus. And they experienced the new life that comes from just knowing Him. But now, even after they were dead, this, the power of, of faith in His name brought them back to life. Now, they died again. They weren't resurrected like the last day resurrection. Just like Lazarus died again. But it was a picture of a sign in this incredible environment of unbelief that God was saying, you guys think that my son... This, this man who said he's my son, he's the king of the Jews, he's the son of God, you think he's a charlatan and he's a heretic, he's a false prophet, but the truth is, he is my son, and he's going to do for you what's unthinkable. You would never believe believed that the Messiah was going to do this, but my judgment is going to fall on him. Hence the darkness. My forgiveness is going to come through him. And so the, the veil of the temple is torn, and a new way into God's presence comes through Jesus. Right at the time he's dying, right at the time of the offering, the sacrifice in the temple, God's sending a message to these people. Everything my son had taught you, everything he'd said, is being fulfilled now. And then the earth shook. And tombs opened up. And dead people came out of them. Jesus had raised the dead. They'd seen him raise the dead in public places with dozens, hundreds, thousands of people around. This is happening in front of everybody. And God is saying, I'm going to shine my light into the skepticism that you're surrounded by and into the doubt and unbelief and the negativity. And I'm going to Offer you a new beginning by the end of my son's life. So his end is our new beginning. And so it goes on uh, real quick to the resurrection. He says, Matthew says, After the Sabbath, which is the day after Jesus was crucified, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. How'd you like to be called the other Mary? I was called Little John in my family because I had a cousin who was taller than me and bigger, and he was Big John and I was Little John. I won't, I won't go into how that scarred me, but I don't know if I want to be called the other Mary for all history, but there was another Mary. These two women went to the tomb because they were going to bring spices, they were going to prepare the body because Jesus had died right as the Sabbath, was about to start. And they were faithful, observant Jews. And they were going to work on the Sabbath. So they hustled Jesus' body into a tomb. They rolled the stone against it. And they were going to come back. And hopefully, they could get the stone rolled away. And they could show his body proper respect and bury it. And, and you know, embalm it and do all the things that they did for, for, for uh, preparation for burial. It says that when they got there, there had been a violent earthquake right before they'd gotten there. And an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Which is a cool picture. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow and the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women who then showed up, don't be afraid for I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. So he's sitting on the the stone of the tomb. Again, again, picture this. It's, it's, it's an amazing picture. The woman come up, and all the, all the guards are like laid out. They're just... They're not drunk. They're professional soldiers. Their lives were at risk if, if they violated their charge. This huge stone is rolled aside. The tomb is empty. And the, the angel tells the woman... Come and see the place where he lay. So, go in and look. He's not in there anymore. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. Now, isn't that like understated? I've, I've tried to figure out, what did that sound like? Was he like, greetings? Yeah. <laughs> greetings. And they go, and they see him, and they run over him, and they fall on his face, and it says that they, they grab his, his feet, and they begin to worship him. And so he says to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they'll see me. Now, all the gospel accounts have, have, tell different aspects of this. And for 40 days, Jesus is appearing to his disciples over and over and over, sometimes in small groups, sometimes with hundreds of them together, sometimes to individuals, over weeks and weeks and weeks. It wasn't just once. Now, remember, they weren't expecting to see Jesus. They were as surprised, they were as doubtful as some of you are right now. Because some of you are going, dead people don't come back alive. Never seen it happen. Never heard it happen anywhere. Don't believe it could ever happen. Don't believe it will ever happen. They weren't any different than you. It was as impossible for them to escape the power of death as it is for us. Yet here is Jesus, who they didn't expect to see over and over, revealing Himself to them, talking to them. And He was in some transformed mode of, of existence that we're going to enter into. He had a body like ours, but it was a body that was perfect, not like our fallen bodies. He came into our world and experienced everything we do, and now he's overcome all of that. And when he died on the cross, his disciples thought it was over. They thought, this is a tragic ending to a wonderful story. When he rose from the grave, it took them time to... Wrestle with this and understand this and sort this out. What does this mean? I mean, they were overjoyed, but they were struggling with it. And so Jesus had to give them instructions and reinforce it over and over and over, just as you expect he would. And so at this point, the last word was not that he was under God's judgment. Because, see, there could have been confusion. Maybe he deserved this. All this bad stuff that happened was signs that that God was really, you know, coming down on Jesus, this imposter. But when he rose from the dead, it did three things. That every Jew who'd been nurtured by the law and by the prophets, they knew, number one, God was vindicating Jesus. That whatever was behind his suffering death, it wasn't because of anything he did. Number two, what he did when he was resurrected showed that what he was doing was for us. So all the crowds of people that mocked him and scorned him and and the thieves on either side of him, he was going through what he was going through for them. Just like when you read the Gospels, you see Jesus having a heart for people like nobody who you ever heard of that that you look at the love of God that was shown through Jesus and you think I didn't even think that was real that was possible it's like love every time you read the gospels it gets redefined for you what real love is and you see Jesus doing everything he's doing for them I mean for God's glory but for the people and then he goes to the cross and he's suffering for them for us for you And he's saying, what I'm doing is for you. I'm doing it for you because you couldn't do it for yourself. And no one else could do it for you. Because he had no sin to atone for. He had nothing he had done wrong. He was innocent. So he was the only one that could be our substitute. And so when he was raised from the dead, it vindicated him. and showed he was the son of God, but it also showed... And what he was doing, he wasn't doing because of himself. It was for us. It was for everyone. This is the good news. And at last, it shows that death has been defeated. Death has been defeated. I'm going to surprise all you guys, but I'm not a spring chicken anymore. And I feel like my life is going faster and faster and faster and faster. And it's like, I I look and I see gray hairs on my arms now. And I see less hair everywhere, (laughs) except my back. And I go, what is wrong with this picture? And I do little simple things and I'm sore and tired. And if I didn't have Jesus, I would be getting so depressed because I see my life winding down. You know, I see my, our grandson. He's got so much energy. And sometimes I'll sit and look at our grandson, and he, and he bears a weird resemblance to me. My, my daughter-in-law said that. She says, when I, when I watch you guys walk down the street, he walks just like you. It's weird. And I see him, and sometimes I'll stop and I'll go, I used to be that age. What happened between then and now? How did it go so fast? And I guess I'll see pictures, of, Kathy has pictures in, in this uh, piece of furniture with uh, family photos, and I'm in there, and my dad and mom, and I look at these pictures of myself, and I, and I can remember, oh my gosh, I remember walking my dog when I was five years old, and I just think, wow, my life has just boom. And the Bible says our life is like a flower. Blooms, it now, admittedly, I've been a long blooming flower, but the bloom's going to come off the rose one day. It's going to come off the rose in your life, and you may feel right now you're young, like I used to think I'm bulletproof. You know, <laughs> nothing, nothing could slow me down, and it, it didn't seem like it could. But now everything slows me down, and death is, death is out there. It's not just a shway out there. It's like, it's closer. And it's real. But Jesus has, and this is the thing, when you meet Jesus, the power of that death is broken and your fear of it just begins to fade. Because the more you experience his love and his forgiveness and his, his providence in your life and, and he speaks to you, you begin to realize death doesn't hold any fear for me anymore. And these people lived in the fear of death. In the ancient world, death was—I mean, it's still a fearful thing—but we have an unrealistic lack of fear of death because so few of us have to face it. Because people don't die around us like they do in most of the world. You go to you go to developing world countries, and people die in their homes. You'll you'll see—you'll see—I've seen dead people on streets going down streets in poor places. Death was really a part of their world. Death was really a part of their world. We have hospitals. People die. We put a cloth over them. You know, we take them down to the basement in the uh, morgue. We don't see it. They saw it. Now, we do see it, and when we see it, it freaks us out. But they were surrounded by it. The Romans would crucify people on this, along the streets, so they see dead people all the time and it freaked them out because their own mortality was so real your mortality is like that too but you know as well as I do this is not the way it's supposed to be our life is not supposed to just end and that's it and it doesn't it goes on forever but we go on forever either in a, with a, a taste of that new life now because that's what Jesus was doing he was saying there's an age to come And I want to show you, I want to give you a taste of what that age is like now. And I'm going to raise people from the dead. And I'm going to rise from the dead. I'll be the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead on that last day. But I I also have that life to give you now. A life that's like the life that I lived. And that's what he offers us. But he he has to show us, and if we're open, if if we're willing to, to listen it's not a popular message because it says that we're messed up and that we're on the wrong side with God. That there is a veil between us and God that we can't get through without Jesus. That veil is there. It's real. You feel it in your life if you don't know Jesus. You You know there's something more but you can't access it. And so... The message of the gospel is really simple. It's it's the Easter message. It's that this new life that God has for us came in His Son, Jesus. And the way that we appropriate what we saw that's so attractive, it's so amazing, is we have to surrender our lives to Him, to this person, Jesus. And not hold anything back. Not hedge our bets. Not play it safe one foot in with Jesus and one foot in with your whole life. It's, it's all in for Jesus. Because that's what trust literally means. It means to rely upon. And you can't rely on God and yourself or God and some other idol. So God just invites you as a gift to receive what Jesus did for you. It's a gift. It's a gift. That's good. What's the good news. When Jesus said it's finished, He did all the work on the cross. And He says... Receive what I've done for you as a gift. But what I ask for you is to commit your whole life to me. Your whole life. Not, not on your terms, on His terms. Now, that is a, a lifetime journey, which we're going to start talking about next week. Just this journey of faith that we go on. That all of us need to see. If you're going to walk with Jesus, it is a journey. And there's not a lot of Christians who are what, I, what, what a friend of mine calls journey Christians. A lot of Christians are destination Christians. And I'll, I'll sh- explain that distinction. And it robs you of something. And you live with so much less than what God has for you if you don't understand this whole thing is a journey. But it starts, His end is our new beginning. And everything that He wants us to live comes from Him. All the resources for your life come from Jesus. But you don't get them if you're trying to bargain with Him. He doesn't bargain. He wants you to have everything He had. It's a free gift. But He just says, will you surrender yourself to Me? Which is trust, which is faith. Will you entrust yourself to Me and say that I did all that for you? That I suffered for you because of the life that you've lived. Now, when I asked you earlier to think about the life that you've lived, there isn't anybody in this room that doesn't have regrets. All of us have serious regrets. There, All of us sitting in this room, we've betrayed people. We've let people down right and left. We've drawn a circle in the sand and stepped into it and said everything revolves around the center of this circle. And we've lived like it. And it's caused pain all around us. And other people have lived like that. And they have hurt us. And then because they've hurt us, we've reacted to that. And we've hurt them. And we've hurt other people that didn't even hurt us. Is this your story? This is why Jesus died. Because the power of sin, it just keeps growing and growing and growing And and it defines who we are, and it enslaves us. And only what Jesus did can break the power of that thing called sin that we've all embraced. You've embraced it. And you've got two options. You can go on in it, or you can taste a new life. His end is your beginning. It's your new beginning. But it's, it's a commitment that you have to make. Now, it's not a popular commitment. Following Jesus in any culture is countercultural, So the American culture is no more poisonous and wrong than any other culture in the world. But to follow Jesus in American culture is challenging for us, especially that are Americans. And There's a cross to bear, just like Jesus bore a cross. There's a cross to bear to follow him. I'm not going to sweeten it. It's not. But he is the reward. He is worth it. The life he offers you is worth whatever it costs you. Now, I've I've been a Christian since I was 18. My freshman year in college, I met Christ. And I'm telling you, I have never regretted it. Not once. And it's been hard at times. It's been costly at times. And I certainly haven't been perfect in the middle of it, but I'm telling you, I look back, there's no way I I would ever want to rethink that commitment I made when I was 18 years old. And I was in a meeting with like 50 times as many people as this. And it was really the first time I think I ever heard this message of the gospel, that, that Jesus had done something for me that I needed, that I couldn't do for myself, and that I was separated from God. I felt that. I felt that. I hope you feel it in some way. And the offer that was made to be, I make to you. I want to ask you today, before you leave, if you've never really committed your life to Jesus, I want you to do it today. I want to encourage you to do it today. Make a public commitment to Him. Jesus suffered and died for you publicly. The story of the Gospel is God was not ashamed to show His love for you. And He's going to ask you the rest of your life not to be ashamed to show your love for Him. And a A big part of showing your love for Him is showing your love to other people who are not easy to love. Just tell you. He is easy to love. People are not easy to love. And He says, if you want to love Me, you've got to love those people that are not going to be easy to love. But the life He offers you is the resource that you draw from to do that. But you need to make a public commitment to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I've heard the story of what he did, and I believe he did it for me. Because what I'm going to ask you to do in just a second is not with every (laughs) eye closed and every head bowed. I just want to ask you to stand up and say, and there may be only one person here, there may be 50 people here, that you're saying, I I get this. Jesus did that for me. I want to surrender my life to him. I want to start following him today. I want his end to be my new beginning today with no hedges, as imperfect as I am, and and it's not up to you to to make all that happen. You're just committing your life to Him and receiving His life as a gift. You don't have to promise you're never going to sin because you couldn't keep that promise. But you're entrusting your life to the One who never sinned, who will help you grow and change for the rest of your life. So I want to ask you just for a second, if you do that, Anybody here, just, just say, I think that, that connects with me. Just Stand up wherever you are. Okay? You want to follow Jesus. He's, he's given his life for you, and you're saying, I want to, in return, give my life for him. You're saying yes. You're saying yes to him. Jesus...